90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, I'm I'm making it. It's incredibly <laughs> busy, and I'm actually getting ready to head out on more travel, but this time to come see you again. Uh, yay! <laughs> I was just going to say, of course you are, and then I remembered, yes. Uh, yeah, not only to, uh, this actually isn't to do anything as hard as last time, I think, but you're coming to give our undergrads a talk about different ways that they can find employment, and I think it's a really cool series that our school is doing. I will say I beg to differ that it is not as hard as what we did last time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) Yeah, so in preparing this talk, uh, the second, yeah, the second slide is a full screen GIF that's a sign that says sorry and then a knot illuminates. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Uh, (laughs) Because this is one of the very few talks that I get to give that is not a purely academic talk or is not me teaching. Yeah, how do you even PowerPoint that? <laughs> um, it's actually lots of full screen photos that are going to be like a mental cue to now you tell this story. Ah, uh, gotcha. And gotcha. then uh, lots of gifs. <laughs> I hope there's a liberal amount of memes sprinkled in there. Well, you know, I'm I'm a little nervous because I'm pretty sure that most of the gifs I used You're are old. N- yeah, they're <laughs> old. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I remember the first time this happened, and I mean, this is going to age me even more. Uh, It was when I was TAing my very first time in 2004, and I made a New Kids on the Block reference in class, (laughs) and nobody got it. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, I'm really young. I'm cool. No one got it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got some references to The Office, which maybe, maybe not. That might be okay. Um, there's some Despicable Me gifs, okay. which they, those should land. That, um, mm-hmm, that's good. And then there's a couple from Real Genius, which there is zero chance. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess as long as they're contextually funny, that's what matters. They're contextually funny. It's always sunny in Philly. I don't know. Uh, uh, if you had any professors in there, which you won't, because we're having a faculty meeting at that time, uh, they would laugh for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, I couldn't pass it up because, you know, it's the one where, oh, just go get a job. Let me put on my job helmet and climb into a job cannon and fire off into job land where jobs grow on jobbies. Like, <laughs> I mean, contextually, that'll be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. I am going to do my best to remember to bring my little iPhone tripod and I will try to live stream it like I do some of my other talks. Oh, yeah, that'll be cool. So we'll see how that goes. We won't tell anyone you're going to do that because then they'll just all say that they watched it on Facebook and yeah. <laughs> yes. So if you're listening to this early, you have to come because I might forget my tripod. <laughs> yeah. And we're writing your name down, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, that'll well, be exciting. Um, you get to visit your magnetometer too. So that'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, I am now part, uh, you know, part soul invested in that machine. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some sweat in there too and blood probably. And tears. <laughs> Mine as well. It's okay. Yep. Well, I think that we should uh, start the process of wrapping up the solar system series. But I don't want to. We're about out of solar bodies. Oh, we can find some more, surely. 
<laughs> we did. We do have a surprise one next week, so that's exciting. <laughs> we do. But this week, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite formerly planet, Pluto. <laughs> yeah, this week, we're real excited to pass that microphone on down the hall from Mike Malaska to Jason Hofgardner. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've learned that uh, everybody calls what they do something a little bit different. So could you tell us about how you got into whatever you call your field and just a little bit about your background? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so my background, uh, I grew up in Canada, actually, uh, right across the river from Detroit. If you were to swim from Detroit to Canada, that's where I grew up. And uh, I didn't know that planetary science, which is what I would call myself, a planetary scientist, was something that you could do until I was in my 20s. Um, you know, I was always very interested in science. Uh, I was doing an undergraduate degree in physics because I enjoyed it. And toward the end of my degree, I, you know, I, of course, had to think about what I wanted to do next. And I was looking up different options. And I discovered this thing called planetary science. And as soon as I, I saw that, I knew that was what I wanted to do. I mean, it was very clear to me then that, that that's exactly where I wanted to go. And so um, I started looking into schools where you could do a graduate degree in planetary science, and uh, thankfully got in to Cornell University in upstate New York, and uh, from there I've, I've ended up here. So it's uh, it's been, maybe I'm, I'm a late starter, but uh, it's been a great adventure so far. So Canada and upstate New York to California, that's quite the, yeah. <laughs> the climate change. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's, it's really wonderful to wake up every single day, put a t-shirt on and not have to worry about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, said like a true northerner, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what are you doing at JPL now for your postdoc? Yeah. So I'm, I'm there as a, a postdoc and I am primarily there to study uh, Pluto and its moon Karen. Um, looking at their surfaces uh, and what processes are operating on their surfaces uh, and also their photometry. So that means sort of, you know, how bright they appear as a function of how we look at them and what that tells us about the surfaces. So their albedo, their roughness, that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, while I'm there, you know, there's so many different things going on at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I'm also continuing some of my work related to my thesis, which was about Titan. Um, which is another very interesting body, and then uh, uh, and a, l a little bit helping JPL with some sort of different ideas of what we could do with future missions. So it's, it's a lot of fun to be there. Did you ever think when you discovered planetary science that you would be working on Pluto? Because, I mean, really Pluto was only a couple of pixelated pieces, right? Back then? Yeah, exactly. Um, no, <laughs> no, I, I never thought I would, uh, I, I never thought I would be working on Pluto, but um, it's, Pluto is an amazing place, as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss in detail. Um, it's, it's really a remarkable place, and so, you know, I'm very glad that I found my way to Pluto, for sure. It's, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> so if we were to start way back, uh, we'll go to the, the beginning what do we know about the formation of Pluto and Charon? Right. So um, Pluto and Charon are, are out in the Kuiper Belt. They're, you know, a uh, very distant part of the solar system, much further than uh, all of the other planets. And uh, we believe they form out in that realm, or we, we think they formed out in that uh, region. And uh, the best hypothesis is that um, sometime early on in the solar system, uh, Pluto was struck by a fairly large object that uh, basically destroyed that object, and uh, then out of the debris, 
uh, Charon was formed, along with Pluto's other uh, four moons. Pluto has four other moons, Styx, Nyx, Kerberos, and Hydra, uh, much smaller, that probably all formed from that large impact. Um, and so there is, is not really much of a record in their geology uh, from anything uh, prior to that impact, but their orbits uh, suggest that they um, formed out in that distant region. And so... Um, so they're, they're this amazing record of, of what happens in a, in a very large impact, just like the Earth-Moon system. Um, they're, they're the two best examples of that, that situation. We've learned a lot about like, orbits being indicators of whether moons have been captured or created in situ. And so when you say we know that Pluto formed way out in the Kuiper Belt, is that because its orbit is inclined to the rest of the orbits of the planets? Uh, so yeah, so Pluto's Pluto's orbit is inclined to the other planets. It's also uh, fairly eccentric compared to the other planets, mm-hmm. and uh, and then okay. it's the most distant. And so it's it's that distance that suggests that. And then the other thing really is that Pluto has very volatile species on its um, surface. So things like nitrogen, carbon monoxide, uh, that would that would be a gas in, in the vapor phase if, if it were to come any closer to the sun, and they would probably be lost. So it's telling us that Pluto. Um, has probably never been uh, that much closer to the sun than it is today. And so it very likely okay. formed out there. Yep. Okay. So, you know, Pluto is vastly different from the things towards Earth from it. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a gas giant. That's right. So what, what happens here? How, how do we get another <laughs> solid rocky body after all these gas giants? Yeah, so, you know, uh, the Kuiper Belt is a region where you have uh, lots of small uh, objects. Um, most, all of them are smaller than Pluto, as far as we know today, um, but we have thousands of, and thousands of them. And so the gas giants likely formed by uh, accreting material in their orbit around the sun, and they, they reached a critical sort of threshold value in, in mass where they started to suddenly rapidly grab gas uh, from all, the, all around them. Uh, out in the out in the distant Kuiper Belt, um, that did not happen. Uh, a good possible reason for that is that the orbits, of course, take longer to go around the sun, and so uh, during that early phase of the solar system, when there was uh, both gas and rocky material around, um, Pluto was accreting material along with other Kuiper Belt objects, but none of them were able to get up to a sort of threshold where they could suddenly start grabbing all of the gas around them, and. Um, you know, other solar systems are going to be a great way to, to test this idea. Uh, we're definitely finding very large gas planets that are at the same distance as ours. We're finding them closer, um, and current techniques aren't really sensitive to ones that are much further out. But in coming decades, you know, we may see them, or we may see that there's no planets out there, uh, just like our own solar system. Uh, so this is, it, Karen is really close to Pluto's size too, right? Don't they kind of, I mean they have a weird orbiting relationship yeah like we would normally think of moons right yeah Charon is you know in many ways a binary to pluto so it's almost like you have okay. two planets that are orbiting each other and uh as a result of this you know pluto's orbit actually pluto actually moves it's it's, it's not rotating around the center but because what's what we call the center of mass which is basically uh sort of a a, a a point in between the two bodies where the mass and distance are balanced. Um, Pluto is actually orbiting around that point that is outside of its body. Uh, so the Earth has a slight wobble because of it, this with the moon. But in the case of Pluto and Charon, because they're so similar, you can really see uh, Pluto move in that way. 
and um, and so th this is you know the most dramatic example of this this kind of uh, binary system in our own solar system. Have we seen these? We hear a lot about you know, and you just said too, Jason, talking about other looking at these other exoplanets and solar systems. Do we see that in another solar system that we've discovered? So, um, not to my knowledge, we've never seen anything that is, is a true binary system, but, you know, we, we, do, okay. we do know that um, the Earth-Moon system is, in many ways, a binary system uh, more than the other planets. And we do also know that many star systems are binary systems, where, where there's two stars that are roughly equal in mass. And so, right. it would not surprise me at all that uh, as we discover more and more of these planets, we'll start finding binary ones. So when we have two binary stars, one's usually eating the other one. Is this happening with Pluto and Charon? Is there something? Is one going to destroy a different, a, the other one? <laughs> that's at a, some point. <laughs> that's a fun question. So um, there, there is no eating going on in the Pluto uh, Charon system, <laughs> but but there is there is a, an exchange of material, which which is actually uh, very interesting. Pluto has an atmosphere. It's made of nitrogen and methane. And um, because of its low gravity, that atmosphere uh, extends for quite a long distance, enough that there is some amount of methane getting transferred to Charon. And uh, what we think is that that methane uh, gets processed on the surface of Charon by high energy, either um, photons, the light particles, or um, just particles coming, coming from the sun or space. And it's converting them into uh, a tholin or just kind of like a gunky hydrocarbon material, kind of like the stuff you find on top of a barbecue. And, uh, and that stuff is, uh, is staying at Karen's poles. And so Karen, we've discovered, has a very red pole. And that's unique. Uh, the, the many icy satellites of other giant planets, uh, they're, they're similar to Karen except they don't have uh, different poles. Their poles are, are a lot like the rest of their body, whereas Charon has this very red pole. And we think that's because Charon is grabbing some of this methane from Pluto. So you could, I guess, say with your eating analogy that Charon is, is taking a very small nibble out of Pluto's atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> and so you said Pluto's atmosphere is really deep. How, how deep is the atmosphere on Pluto? Well, it, it kind of depends on what you, what you want to call the top of the atmosphere, right? So um, <laughs> Pluto's atmosphere uh, goes a long way in that sense. You could, you could you know, uh, New Horizons observed it for several hundred kilometers above the surface. But the, um, the pressure of the atmosphere is much, much weaker than Earth's. Um, uh, Earth's atmosphere is, is about one bar at the surface. That's kind of the definition of a bar unit. And Pluto's atmosphere is more like 10 microbar, so about 100,000 times lower pressure. So um, it's, it's a much uh, less dense, lower pressure atmosphere. And then because of that low gravity, that low pressure just kind of extends for a very long way. Oh, wow. So a, a really huge scale height compared to anything that meteorologists are typically used to looking at. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much, much larger. And then, and then Karen has, has no atmosphere at all. Karen, you know, Pluto and Karen, like we've talked about, are, are fairly similar in their size, but Pluto is bigger. And, uh, and quite possibly that the difference in their atmospheres is because Pluto is sort of just big enough to hold on to it, whereas Karen is not. Hmm. So you mentioned the, the data from New Horizons and that it observed at several hundred kilometers above the surface. 
what did we know about Pluto and Karen before New Horizons? Uh, it wasn't a whole lot. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the highest resolution telescope that we have available to us, the Hubble Space Telescope, I think it was something like 40 or 50 pixels uh, on Pluto uh, wide. And so we had a very poor understanding of what Pluto's surface looked like, um, what kind of geology it had. Um, we were, um, we were, you know, much further away from understanding Pluto than we are today. But there were some very important um, things from those telescope observations that we that we did know. We did know that Pluto had an atmosphere, and so New Horizons was designed uh, to study that atmosphere in detail. Uh, we did know, for example, that Pluto has uh, some very uh, strong variations in brightness, and so actually New Horizons specifically looked at uh, the spot that was thought to be the uh, biggest difference between the dark and bright regions, so that way it could sample both the brightest and dark regions. Um, so, you know, we, we knew very little, but it was uh, still things that we that uh, the mission took advantage of uh, when it flew by to in order to maximize the science that we could get out of that flyby. And those pictures that came back were just unbelievable. I mean, I think it would couldn't have worked out any better, right? Because we saw all these surface features that, like you had said, I mean, I was joking when I said three pixels, but it was really not much better. Right, right. <laughs> so, like, those were really impressive um, pictures. I remember we, w I took a class out to the Lowell Observatory not long after New Horizons came back, and it was just this hour-long slideshow of just awesome surface pictures of Pluto. Yeah, it's it really is a, an amazing world. I think it is uh, more active and, and more diverse in its activity and in terms of the different geologic processes that are going on there. Um, there's many of them, and, and they're active. They're happening today than uh, I think anybody expected. It really is uh, incredible. These, these pictures are phenomenal. You know, my, one of my favorites was uh, one of the first uh, high-resolution pictures that came down to the ground just shortly after the encounter. And I was uh, very fortunate to be in the room when people were looking at that picture for the first time. And, uh, and there were these mountains that we had known were there, but uh, this was sort of the first time we could see just how large a shadow they were casting. And um, okay. someone in the room was able, to, was able to quickly calculate that these, uh, these shadows were indicating that these mountains were roughly four kilometers high which was just, just an amazing, amazing thing. I mean, that's, you know, the size of the Rocky Mountains on this much, yeah. much smaller world. And uh, it's, just, it's just an incredible discovery. So, yeah, the pictures are, are phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so excited because we've been talking about, John and I both have atmospheric science backgrounds and geology backgrounds, and we've been doing these gas giants. And I'm so excited to get back to real geology now <laughs> with Pluto. Right. But I, what are these mountains made of? Like, what are these geologic processes that are going on? This is so exciting. Yeah, yeah. So these mountains are um, are likely uh, primarily made of, of water, H2O. And, uh, you know, pro it's interesting that, that prior to the New Horizons flyby, it was debated whether or not Pluto had water at its surface, had H2O. Um, and by, by, by water and H2O here, I mean, of course, solid ice because it's so cold. There's, there's no right. liquid water. Um, and the fact that these mountains were that high uh, was, was in that room that I was just describing in that time. It was immediately recognized uh, by someone else on the team that that indicated they had to be made of H2O because uh, at those temperatures, it is uh, so... Uh, rigid that it could support a four kilometer mountain whereas other types of ices that we knew at the surface such as 
um, nitrogen, carbon monoxide, methane probably could not support that kind of steep topography. Um, oh, wow. So it was right there, a discovery of, of uh, H2O at the surface. So is the ice, is it the, the regular crystal structure water ice that we have on Earth, or is it some of these other crystal structures that happen at different pressure temperature combinations? Yeah, so... Or do we um, <laughs> We're not certain, but we think that at the surface, it's, it's probably this, the ice, what's called ice-1H, that we're familiar with on the Earth. Um, there, it doesn't seem to be amorphous ice, which is found on occasionally on some places. And uh, further down, there may be some uh, so-called higher pressure ices, but uh, we don't know for sure about that. So, but largely the H2O is, is the kind that we're, we're familiar with, just much, much colder. I, I love doing or talking to people that do planetary geology because I always say, I had done a little bit of work on glaciers and uh, things during grad school, always remind people that ice is a mineral and the geologists always roll their eyes, but it's so important in planetary geology. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's 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 very true. And uh, you you would especially love Pluto then, John, because Pluto has an amazing amount of glacial activity that has happened in the past and is happening today. We see uh, a thousand kilometer wide ice sheet on Pluto, so just a tremendously large sheet of ice, and uh, and then we see. Uh, higher topography ices that are actually flowing down into that sheet uh, doing basically as glacial activity today. Uh, but the difference is that all of that, that those glaciers that I'm talking about are, are nitrogen ice, so, so totally different minerals than, uh, than the ice glaciers that we're used to on the Earth. It's, uh, it's really astounding. Oh, man, I'd love to get my hands on an ice core. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and go back in time that way. Uh, so th there's glacial processes going on, but for mountains, we also expect some sort of tectonic type thing? Or what are the, what's the forcing mechanism? Sure. Um, we see evidence for tectonics on Pluto, um, and definitely they may have uh, been related to the mountains. The mountains that um, were the most dramatically imaged and, and sort of the biggest ones that we saw on Pluto, many of them actually, it looks like, may be um, floating mountains in the sense that they are uh, H2O in a nitrogen glacier. And because uh, basically the densities of those two minerals or, or glacial ice phases is very similar, the water ice mountains are, are, like, are practically floating in that nitrogen. And, uh, and so it's a little bit different on the Earth where you have maybe uh, plates that are pushing up against each other and creating mountains in that way. Uh, here it seems more like they're just, they're just floating in the nitrogen, which is uh, it's just so cool to look at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so how do we know that these are active geologic processes instead of, you know, just record of ancient processes? Right, right. So... Um, the number one sort of dating toolkit in a, in a planetary geologist, not an Earth geologist's uh, toolbox for dating is, is impact craters. Uh, we used impact craters to understand ages throughout the solar system. And on Pluto, we see, um, in, especially in its dark regions, a, a very high density of impact craters that suggest those are, are very old regions, possibly from uh, very near the, the formation time of Pluto. But then these glacial regions that, that we're discussing, uh, we see... Uh, zero impact craters in some spots. Um, sometimes in, in some of these active regions that, that we consider to be active today, we see maybe a few impact craters, but that thousand kilometer wide ice sheet, which is a very big area, uh, zero impact craters identified. 
Um, and you know we have the resolution to see impact craters well down to below a kilometer in that case. And so the fact that there's no impact craters there is telling us that that surface must be young because we expect that there have been impacts into that region throughout Pluto's history. Probably you know every every part of the surface would have been saturated in craters, but then the glacial activity has renewed that surface and removed the craters. And so that's what's telling us that it's young. And the fact that there's none means that it's really essentially renewing itself right up until the present day. Okay, so we've got the uh, the active glacial part, but then you said there are the darker regions that have lots of impact craters. Uh, so if we were able to go do some geology there, what would we be looking at? Um, so we would probably be looking at um, uh, a organic covering on uh, Pluto's crust. Um, th those dark regions are dark because they have hydrocarbons, carbon and hydrogen uh, molecules that are into long chains or, or rings, um, complex materials. Uh, you know, as I said before, I, I like to think of this material like when I'm barbecuing, that, that sort of nasty black <laughs> stuff in the barbecue. Uh, it's, not, it's maybe not the best analogy, but it's kind of like that. And so that's probably what we'd be seeing at the surface. And it would be almost like a, like a mantling or dusting on top of a, a pre-existing topography from other geologic processes like the tectonics and impact craters. Um, that is kind of layering on top of that material is what we'd be looking at. And since it's covered, we probably can't get an idea from remote sensing of what's under it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it seems to be a, a decently uh, good, good cover. So, um, you know, maybe with a, a future uh, mission to Pluto uh, using different techniques, we may be able to see what's underneath or see, measure how, how thick it is. But just from the images of, of the surface, uh, it doesn't seem like that's going to work. So it sounds like we need to shoot something at Pluto to disturb that, right? <laughs> yeah, or or <laughs> maybe a radar could do it. Um, that kind of that kind of thing uh, by seeing through it. That's that's not as fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> I love this barbecue analogy. That's that's pretty great. Like. Yeah, it's. Uh... I, I feel like when you say organics, everyone's automatically thinking of like you know fuzzy green moss and stuff, but that that makes it more sense. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when we did the flyby of New Horizons, did we learn anything about the the structure from the gravity data that we would be able to collect? Uh, so actually, um, because New Horizons was, was flying by at, at such speed and uh, there was all this imagery it wanted to collect, it, it didn't have the time to, to collect sort of as high uh, or as uh, good of gravity data as it otherwise uh, would have been able to. And so that was not a priority during the time. And so we have not learned a lot about Pluto's interior structure in that sense. There's only so much we can do, of course, during a flyby. And so... Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest right now in, um, in Pluto and uh, in ocean worlds throughout the solar system, this idea of worlds that have uh, liquid water oceans underneath their surfaces. And, uh, and Pluto is, is kind of um, this in-between region where it seems like it could have an uh, ocean, but we're not sure. And so um, that, that is likely to be something that will be worked on for many years to come and, and maybe something that might just be teased out of the data, but it's, it's not at all going to be easy to determine whether or not that's the case. Um, so Pluto's interior is definitely of interest. And do we know anything about whether Pluto has a magnetic field? 
we do not know. Um, the New Horizons instrument did not carry a magnetometer, and uh, and so we don't we don't know whether or not Pluto has an internal magnetic field. That is uh, something we certainly would love to do in the future, um, but it's going to have to wait for a future mission. Oh, that that makes me sad since I do paleomagnetism. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything gets a magnetometer. Come on. Right, right. <laughs> well, it, that, that's true, but it, you know, it makes me happy because I really want to go back to Pluto. I think uh, I think oh, okay. New Horizons has found that it's just a very compelling place to go. That it really can teach us a lot. That there's a lot of fun things to learn there. And uh, and so this is one more reason to go back, and one more thing to do when we do go back. So, um, that is, that's real true. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> and uh, maybe twenty years from now, I'll have the answer for you then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll wait. Um, <laughs> so I mean, with all the things that New Horizons was able to gather, and it was still fairly, you know, it wasn't very long ago. I mean, what is the chances of getting another Pluto mission anytime soon? Uh, well, that's that's the the important question, of course. Uh, you know, uh -huh, I yeah. think uh, I think there is um, good scientific reason to do it, and I think there is uh, the engineering capability within NASA and it, and its uh, partners to to pull that kind of thing off. And so uh, it's really a question of of uh, a decision uh, to do that or not. And so there is a group of scientists who are um, motivated to try and make that happen and working on that. And we're uh, taking it through the process, and, and hopefully it, it will hopefully it will happen. But you know, the, the the real point I want to emphasize when I talk about that is that we should not think that this requires any kind of uh, technological miracle to go back to maybe put something in orbit around Pluto. Uh, it's a challenge, but it you know I think it can be done. And so uh, let's go do it. I think after we landed a probe on a moving comet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly i feel i yeah i feel like the tech challenges are just not what they used to be <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned going into orbit around pluto new horizons was a flyby mission what was the design decision and trade-off there to do a flyby instead of try to go into orbit right so um so yeah, I mean, going into orbit, when you're going into orbit, you have to uh, get captured into the gravitational field of, of that object. And so you generally have to be going uh, decently slow, or you have to have a way of, of slowing yourself down. And, uh, and then you have to basically know how to navigate in that system, how to do the science you want to do there. And if you're flying by, you have, um, you can avoid a lot of those challenges and you can also go faster, right? So the very distant Pluto way out on the edge of our solar system, um, there's a lot of motivation to go there fast because New Horizons was actually the fastest spacecraft ever launched when it left the Earth. And it still took it nine and a half years to get there. And so uh, the real motivation was speed. And th this, is, this is very common. So NASA has what it calls the, the classic exploration track of, of any object where, uh, where it starts out by observing that object with telescopes. And that's followed by a sort of first order reconnaissance with a spacecraft flyby. And then later on, you go into orbit around that object, you study it in more detail, and then that's followed by uh, much more uh, up-close investigations like um, roving, flying, swimming, etc. on that object. Uh, and then you bring the, the sample back home. Uh, so that's kind of the classic exploration track, and this New Horizons flyby is, is following that track in, uh, in the case of Pluto, and, and an orbiter is the logical next step in that case. But if... If we do send an orbiter, it will probably take significantly longer to get there then, is what you're saying, since we have to 
have to break so much when we get there or launch with a lot more propellant. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the trade. And, um, I'm not an expert in, in, in that kind of thing, but we would either have to exactly be able to speed up and slow down while we're traveling there or else, uh, take our time more or have a way of really slowing down right when we got there. Uh, so that, that is a challenge. Um, but I, I'm confident NASA's engineers are, are up to the, up to that challenge. So you, we were keeping Pluto in our, you know, tour of the solar system, right? And it's been downgraded from, you know, planet to dwarf planet. Um, but can it still teach us something about our solar system as a whole? Because it's still orbiting our sun and things like that. I mean, you know, it's kind of a weird one, right? Sure. Um, Pluto absolutely has a lot to teach us about the solar system, you know, regardless of what we call it. Uh, it, it really it was our first exploration of this this sort of what I like to think of as the third zone of the solar system. So we have the terrestrial planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars that are close in. Then we have the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Those are the first two zones. And the Kuiper Belt is the third zone, and that's that's where Pluto okay. rules. And it's our first exploration of that region, and, and we've, we've discovered that it is a uh, very active, very interesting place. Um, talked about that Pluto has you know all kinds of different geology going on and so I, I think it's showing us that geology is still happening way out there even though we didn't really expect that because there is so little solar energy to power it right you know lots of geology on the earth is related to uh, right. the water cycle uh, there, there's not as much energy to evaporate things um, and then also Pluto being so small there's very little internal energy uh, much less so than on the earth and yet, despite those challenges, it still has a very active geology. And so it's teaching us that uh, geology in the solar system and in other solar systems, it can work with a lot less energy than, than maybe we expected. That, that's one example of, uh, of the kind of things that Pluto can teach us. But of course, there's many more. We talked a little bit about how it's teaching us about how uh, planetary systems form, especially uh, binary planetary systems where, where the two are very similar. Uh, it has this uh, you know, very complex uh, organic barbecue gunk that uh, that we can learn about. So um, it has so much to teach us, uh, regardless of how small it is or, or whether or not it's a planet. Ah. So talking about the Kuiper Belt being the third area of the solar system, um, some of these moons that have been captured by those large outer you know, gas giants, are those potentially Kuiper Belt objects too? Yes, um, not not all of them, but uh, I think some of them. You know, uh -huh. th there's definitely good evidence. Uh, two two that that I think are, are likely captured Kuiper Belt objects are Triton, the largest moon of Neptune, okay. a very very interesting uh, object that has a lot of activity going on as well, and similar to Pluto. And then uh, some a moon that is very different uh, called Phoebe around Saturn, uh, but also uh, might be a Kuiper Belt object. And so. Um, we, we may be able to study the Kuiper Belt uh, not only by going out to places like Pluto, but actually by going to these moons as well, which is which is fascinating. Okay. And it, the same thing there, those, because of the way they rotate and the way they orbit, we know that they weren't formed at the same time as Neptune or Saturn, right? That's right, yeah. In the case yeah, okay. of, of Triton, um, it, it actually orbits uh, backwards compared to how Neptune yeah. rotates. And so that that's a pretty... <laughs> Pretty big hint right there um, that that something is is, uh, is unusual. Yeah. <laughs> so you're using New Horizons data in your postdoc now. 
I'm curious, what is it like to work with this data? I know there's massive volumes of it, and depending on what type of data you're working with, you probably use a pretty wide range of tools. So what what does your workday look like looking at data? Sure, yeah. So actually, before I answer that, let, let me say, you know, I am so grateful to be able to work on the New Horizons data because um, th this is a mission, like I said, that took nine and a half years to get to Pluto. Uh, the the scientists on the team were, were working on this mission for more than 10 years prior to that to uh, to work on designing it, to work on proposing it to NASA. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to use it now in my postdoc, uh, having joined the team sort of right at the juiciest phase. And so I'm just very, very <laughs> grateful that I can do that. And you know, working on it every day is, is, is a pleasure. I, I get to, um, uh, I'm using tools that uh, is a lot of software. So I ingesting the images into software uh, to do what I call quantitative analysis of them. So uh, uh, understanding, you know, in detail the brightness of each region and how that brightness is changing as you look at it differently because those angles and how it functionally varies uh, with those angles is telling you about the surface. And uh, a lot of that work then is, is with other team members. So communicating the results that I'm doing and, and uh, listening to the results that they're getting. Uh, it's a huge amount of, of teamwork working with, with other scientists, uh, which is, of course, one of the funnest parts of the job. That's something that we hear over and over when we talk to people that are working on missions is about uh, how much teamwork is required. And I can only imagine because it's such a complicated thing that you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, it really is uh, amazing. Um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, just so many different um, talents and so many different perspectives that come together with a, a common goal and um, and are not afraid to to disagree. And uh, and then because of that, we're able to to accomplish great things. One of one of my favorite times when I'm working is when I'm uh, with people who are um, sort of experts at what they do. And there's sort of one person in each chair at, at sort of their little zone. And having all of us with our slightly different expertise sort of working on the same problem, there's just this great exchange of ideas and knowledge that is just it's so much fun to be in a room when that kind of uh, exchange is happening. It's so important to, I think, just to science in general to get those different perspectives, you know, because it's like you get you're in your own zone, but somebody sees your specific thing a little bit differently than you do. And you can get so entrenched in that, that it's often refreshing, but also it's, you know, creative and can lead to different research areas. If you listen to these people talk about your thing differently than you see it, you know, I, I always think that's a really interesting uh, thing that can come out of having those different people in the same room. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, you know, different perspectives just is really uh, an important part of the, the creative process and, and really getting to the solution. And, and, and not even just perspectives, but also just, just the sheer volume of expertise that, you know, I mean, we're talking about whole planets and how they work and uh, different ones throughout the solar system. There's just so much um, complications of nature that it's impossible for one person to keep track of all of these and, and have uh, so many different uh knowledge from all of them and so by having uh, a right. teamwork it it you know it makes it possible <laughs> yes and so you mentioned that you do a lot of image analysis with various pieces of software are these things like you know image j or photoshop 
or are you doing a lot of writing, you know, MATLAB scripts or IDL scripts or Python scripts? Yeah, so myself, I, I tend to use a, a two two main uh, software pieces. One is called, uh, it's actually called ISIS, the image, uh, Integrated Software for Imaging Spectrometers. It's by the United States Geological Survey. And uh, for what it's worth, they did have the ISIS name before um, before the, the terrorist <laughs> group in Syria. Yeah. And... Um, and then MATLAB, uh, like you said. So, so those are kind of the two that I, I work uh, with most often. Um, and then another being ArcGIS is kind of kind of the typical tools that I'm using. See, this all comes back around. I teach field geology, and it all comes back around to field geology, right? You're using USGS stuff and Arc, which is, you know, the field geologist tool bag now. So even when you're studying Pluto, you still need to understand things about field geology. A hundred percent. Yeah. You can't get away with it. Like you said. Um, and it, 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 in some sense, uh, it, it makes, I mean, for, in my case, it makes you excited to go, go back to the field geology. You know, there's just so many interesting things that we learn about in other places and you go back and you find out that there's great analogies on the earth and it just gives you a much better perspective for how complicated and, and wonderful the earth is as well. Yeah, definitely. So geology students that are listening to this, the field is important <laughs> and learning how to use computers is important. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. Yep, and teamwork. <laughs> and teamwork. <laughs> Always. Um, so what we have asked every expert that we've had on here, Jason, is if you could go to Pluto and live there for a month, where are you going to go and what are you going to look at? <laughs> okay, well, first <laughs> let me say, um, you know, like we talked about, it took nine and a half years to get to Pluto. So if I'm going to go to Pluto and do a journey like that, I'm going to stay for longer than a month. I'm staying for a year or two years or something. <laughs> but uh, if, Fair enough. If, if I had to pick a spot, I think I would, I would go for the view. I would go maybe to the top of one of those mountains where you could probably see a, a huge long distance across to, to the horizons and, uh, and see that 1,000-kilometer uh, long, wide uh, glacial ice sheet beneath you. Uh, with all those uh, mountains around you and then uh, sort of in the other direction is that dark, dark um, hydrocarbon terrain. I think would just be an amazing, amazing place to stand up there and look around and see Pluto and that's, that's where I would want to go. Nice. That would be amazing. And I yeah. imagine the view of the sky would be pretty strange because you've got Karen there. It's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I'm, I'm sure it would be very interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. One thing about about Pluto and Charon is that because of their binary binarity, um, they're what's called a fully tidally evolved system, and so you can only ever see Charon from from one side of Pluto. So if you're on the opposite side, you would actually never see Charon. And then and then the other the, the opposite is true that if you're standing on Charon, you have to be on the right side to see Pluto, and uh, and not on uh not on the other side so so that's true for the moon but not for the earth we can see the moon from from you know any longitude on the earth and so uh if you wanted to see karen you'd have to pick your longitude right <laughs> i never thought about that that's so crazy <laughs> <laughs> wow hmm. interesting yeah definitely uh <laughs> well thanks so much jason for taking the time to come on the show and talk about pluto with us it was a, it was a blast yeah. Thanks for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. It's always fun to talk about Pluto. Well, Shannon, Pluto is a cold little ball of ice, but it'll always be a planet to me. Oh, me too, man. I don't even call it not a planet. So, 
there's that. I mean, it's got so much cool stuff going on. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So now we're going to shift gears just slightly, actually, in everybody's <laughs> favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday! Yay! So, my frame of mind when picking this fun paper was... <laughs> uh, I was in the middle of working on a big old grant proposal that we wound up not submitting. <laughs> so, that was a lot of work this week. And then I was thinking, alright, now I've got to turn my attention to going through this paper, and then polishing up my next submission. And I found this in uh, Nature, and it's just um, a comment in the article here, or in the uh, journal here, and it's talking about thousands of scientists publish a paper every five days. Which <laughs> sounds absurd. Yeah. <laughs> So this made me really sad, but I thought that we should talk about it because when we did our segment talking about the academic life, um, I think this is something that no one outside of academia thinks about or knows what we're doing, and half the people in academia probably don't know either, right? Yeah, and it's something that's sort of a pet peeve of mine about the publishing system. So, Oh, I figured this one would get you uh, riled up. <laughs> so strap in because this is going to be an interesting fun paper. Uh, yeah, I, I won't say that I didn't take this opportunity to needle you a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, and, and this was just, like I said, this isn't like a published statistical analysis, really, but the authors, authors here did do a search to figure out um, what, who are these hyper-prolific, they call uh, authors. So they were searching Scopus, which we'll talk about what that is, for authors who had published more than 72 papers, which is the equivalent of one paper every five days, in any one calendar year between 2000 and 2016, which seems insane. Yeah, and so that turned up about 9,000 people, but <laughs> then they ended up throwing out vast majorities of them because of things like large physics projects, where you might have you know, the head of a project uh, like the Large Hadron Collider or the team of LIGO is on many, many, many papers. Right, exactly. And it said that in physics, it can have up to a thousand authors on these papers. Yeah, can you imagine the track changes on that? I know. <laughs> That's what I thought. Because <laughs> that goes down to something that is sort of one of those good scholarly things, like what constitutes, you know, who gets to be an author and what are their obligations. But I'm assuming we will get to that too. So that was one thing that got thrown out. And then there was also a problem when looking at Chinese or Korean names, actually, because the way that Scopus disambiguates those names, it could count double for a lot of people. Or you could combine individuals on there as well. Yeah, so you have two individuals with the same name. Scopus has no way to differentiate them because maybe they even work in the same field. Right, exactly. So... That was a problem when counting two, and they went through and tried to get rid of that um, and excluded a lot of the names that they couldn't from further analysis. And after that, they wound up getting 265 authors that were these hyper-prolific publishers. Which is still a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's insane. Like, I can't even, I can't so, even fathom. To put that in perspective, these people had to publish at least 72 papers a year. That's 19,080 papers a year from this group. That's outrageous. 
So if you assume, you know, a mean paper length of seven pages, that's 133,560 pages. Oh, my gosh. All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> um, it did say the one sort of figure in here said that these hyperprolific authors are proliferating themselves and that in 2012 there was only four of these and in 2008 there was 39 2016 there's 81 i thought this was kind of interesting since it goes along with you know the tagline of the show <laughs> which <Right>. is <laughs> more than half the scientists that are alive are alive today so you see that in these hyper prolific publishers so I, a lot of the papers were in the medical sciences right which I have to say, at risk of getting lots of flame mail, surprises me zero. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I mean, our fun papers are mostly in the medical sciences, too, <laughs> because there's so many papers. <laughs> it's true. And it's um, there are a lot of cases where you're documenting the effect of A on B, not necessarily developing a model of why that is so. So you can do the experiments, oh, yes. do the statistics, and publish. It's a very short turn time. Versus in the physical sciences where we have to have a physical model of what's happening. You're right, exactly. And then, you know, you can still sort of do that a little bit. And actually, I was advised to do that, which I thought was very much gaming the system uh, when I was in a how to be a professor workshop back when I was still in grad school. And that's what they advised was publishing as often as you can on your same topic. And that's kind of crappy, especially in PMAG, because that's not how PMAG works you know you do all the work up front before you even really know if you have a story and so that seems a little unfair to people who are publishing along the way yeah and it is not that uncommon in pmag for example to come home and run all of your rock samples over the course of several weeks and then go well <laughs> there's nothing here this is where the Journal of Null Results really needs to exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I want to know how many, you know, in PMAG, that should still be recorded so some other PMAGger doesn't go out and do the same thing. <laughs> well, how many times have terrible. we gone to the field and found holes where exactly. other people have drilled? <laughs> exactly. And you're like, are these just lazy people who haven't published or are these people who have run their stuff and there's nothing in here and you can't, you don't know until you drill them again. So Right, because so if they had published that data, you wouldn't have had to spend all of the NSF money to go out there and yeah. drill the same rock. Yeah, exactly. So that's a whole nother show, Journal of Null Results, which I'm sure we can rant about. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can rant about it. <laughs> So an, another interesting thing that was brought up in here is that a lot of these hyper-prolific authors were from Asian countries, and that's because a lot of governments in Asia provide monetary incentives. Right. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Um, so there were 37 countries represented in the 265 hyper-prolific publishers, which I'm going to keep saying because I love it. Um, with the most in the U.S., but proportionally, that was or that was proportional to the amount of science coming out of the U.S. Germany and Japan were overrepresented, but yeah, like you just said, disproportionately, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, were countries that were overrepresented because of these cash rewards for publish publishing. Yeah, and I mean, I know I was talking to uh, 
uh, one of my grad school colleagues who had said, well, if you had published this paper that I had just submitted in China, you, you would have had fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 coming your way. Oh, my goodness. Because it was to a very high-profile journal at the time. Right. That is... That's ridiculous. <laughs> but then you flip that on its head and say, how much different is that from here? Where you don't get a cash reward, but your publication history definitely bears on the minds of reviewers for NSF proposals. Right. Yep. That is that is absolutely true. So really, it isn't much difference. You could even fight and say that it makes more sense to cash incentivize it. At least it's out on the table that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the whole publishing system, which we won't go too much into here, but I think I've told no. this joke before many, many shows ago, so it's time to tell it again. <laughs> Uh, which is publishing a scientific paper is like you and your advisor going into a bar. You bring your own beer with you in a cooler. You open it. You sit there and you drink it. When you're done, you put it in the recycle bin. You wipe down the bar and then you pay the bartender. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I, I think this hyperprolific authorship damages the system in several ways. One is it costs an absurd amount of money. Uh, so my average journal article publication cost mm -hmm. is between two and five thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. And so let's go let's go with the low end of that and say that's twenty five hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. That means that each hyperprolific author was spending a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year on Just publications. Publishing. And many of those go into the same journals, it says, too. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen, for some longer papers, that there is a clear divide, like here are our measurements and here's our model. Mm -hmm. I understand having a paper that is part one, part two with the same authors. Okay. Because maybe you don't want, or you it would be hard to get reviewers for yeah. the 80-page yeah, <laughs> monograph. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But there are a lot of papers I see where it's part one, part two, and, you know, they're like four pages each. It's like, you just wanted two line items on your CV. Mm -hmm. Minimum publishable unit. <laughs> oh, that infuriates me that that's even a phrase. Uh, <laughs> so in here, too, which kind of goes along with that, um, they went through in the end and were scanning for redacted papers from these authors and it said that one of them, I don't have it right in front of me. Um, it said that one of them had like six redacted papers because they were self, um, what they say? They were, the, the, he, they were self-duplicative. Self-duplicative. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so really? they published the exact same experiments twice. They went so <laughs> fast <laughs> that they wrote the same paper like six times. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and so my other gripe here is it was not uncommon 50 years ago for a PhD to result in one, maybe two publications. Right. Mm -hmm. In some cases, that's still the case now. Yes. Uh, there are some people that might have five to ten. And yep. there are a few rare people that have five to ten highly impactful papers out of their PhD. It happens sometimes. Somebody gets a magic project. <sighs> uh, but more often than not, it's variations on a theme. Yep. 
And there's already so much literature to read and keep up with. Yeah. I don't know how some people do it. I mean, I scan abstracts of papers in about three journals and it's exhausting. <laughs> it is. And and you start to it's this terrible I mean, I know we tell we're supposed to say don't panic, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's a terrible feedback cycle, I think, for these non hyperprolific people is that, you know, you get that table of contents and you're like, okay, there's four papers I need to read in here, you know, in whatever journal that's sort of closely aligned to your work. But then there's these ancillary journals like, okay, well, there's three in that one, two in that one. So now you've got nine journal articles and uh, yeah, it gets overwhelming so much so that I think it's probably drives a lot of people out of academia and people might say then they don't belong there if they can't handle it. But that's, that seems wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I'm certainly not saying that, you know, you should have every last aspect of your problem figured out before you publish because then there would be no publications. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's fine. But the minimum publication unit is all too often the norm, I believe. Yeah, there are far too many papers where it's like, here's some observations and a couple of random guesses as to what they mean. Future work. See you next time. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I also thought was interesting about this article was there are these things called the Vancouver Criteria. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't really know about this. I mean, I guess I'd heard it, but I didn't know it was a real thing. Um, and... There are criteria that authors, they want authors to look at and say, did you do these things? If so, you should be an author on these paper, right? And it's stuff like substantial contributions to either designing the work or running the analysis or interpreting the data, uh, drafting the work, um, revising it, final approval to be published, and agreeing to be accountable for all aspects of the work, which is a big deal when you're in a group. Like, that sounds like something that's dumb, but... You still have to double-check your co-authors, too. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Several journals that I've submitted to in the last five years or so have actually had to start listing. Mm. The, this author did, and you would have those criteria. And in some cases, they would even ask, what percent? So, for example, on some papers, mine was, I ran 100% of the experiments and did 100% of the data analysis. Right. But my advisors contributed to the writing the editing the idea generation etc right exactly the concept or design in the work right so, but so, it and that was published so, you know it said these yeah. these authors did zero percent of the experiments and data analysis i like that number one because you know who to contact if you actually have a question about right. what's happening right and you don't just contact everyone and then no one replies um so the authors of this paper went on to contact those 265 people and they got 81 survey responses and the responses that they got related to asking these authors if they themselves thought that they met the Vancouver criteria for their papers was very interesting. Yeah. A lot said no and a lot more probably should have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I was actually impressed at how many did say no. Right. Um, and then, a couple of these people on here said that, you know, they don't even count these papers as their papers, the, the ones when they're part of a big consortia or something that they get their names on. And I think that's very truthful. But when it comes down to just crunchy numbers, they still count as their papers, you know. I mean, there have definitely been papers where I ran a model 
or I contributed a data set that I had run for something else. And then I got a notification, a paper has been submitted and you're a co-author. Right. Like, huh? yep. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me all the time too. Like I get thrown on the end of these papers because I crunched, you know, 5% of their data or something like that. Yep, exactly. Um, which, while you know, I appreciate it, nice. I also would appreciate a chance to review the paper. <laughs> exactly. It's nice, but mm-hmm. I haven't had that problem yet. Thank God I've always been given the whole thing before we move on. So that's good. Um, so it's real interesting that these authors fessed up to that. Um, the one thing, too, that we haven't talked about is they asked them, how do you do this? Well, how can you be this prolific? <laughs> and this was real depressing, I thought, too. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it said, and this is so funny because this is so antithetical, I feel like, to our sciences. It said when you become the chair or the head of a research group, your publication shot up, like exponentially in some cases, because they said that directors are were expected to do more research, which is kind of the almost exact opposite <laughs> Of what, you know, directors in our type of academic departments do. Yeah, and I know it's different for different fields. You know, for example, in our field, uh, the first author on the paper is generally the one that did the most work. Right. In Mm -hmm. biology, it's generally the last author. Right. And one of the interesting ideas here was we should have tiers of authorship. That aren't order-related. That are not order-related, yes. Like, Mm -hmm. these are the uh, experimental authors. These are the writing authors. These are the authors that helped contribute to the funding. Yeah. And, you know, these are the authors that are those people's bosses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that always happens. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. What I would like to, being a woman and I think about this, uh, I wanted to see, because when they were saying, you know, people went up when they became director, people's authorships went down significantly when they turned that directorship over to somebody else. Um, I want to know how prolific these people got like when their kids moved out <laughs> like that's the thing that, <laughs> like that's the thing that i see like no kids in the house you're just at work all the time like i feel like it has more to do with that than, with that but that was not on this um survey <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and also there's a lot of well you need to have a big research group i disagree yeah. with, i think that's a bad service to your students uh yes several yeah. places i applied there were people that were like i have 20 people in my group I did not go to those places. It, um, yeah, exactly. And then there was also a, the, I hate this because it corrupts something that I think is true. They said, you have to be passionate about it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, you're confusing passion and poor work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because on that list of hyperactivity, oh, sorry, <laughs> I misspoke. it said that most people got few hours of sleep (laughs) yes which is not healthy no not even close (laughs) Uh, in fact i will link in an episode of the free agents podcast that david sparks co-hosts they recently talked about sleep it's a very interesting show for those of us who think that oh i can just give up you know 30 minutes a night and get this done in two weeks um They've done some experiments and looked into some research, and actually, it probably makes it take longer. Ah, I definitely need to read that. <laughs> so I'll link that podcast in the show notes. But uh, if you have your own statistics on how many papers you have published, or if you meet the Vancouver <laughs> criteria and you're willing to fess up, 
Uh, we would love it if you would send those to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send those to us. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can always send a link on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, you can find us in the Slack chat room on the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep this podcast alive for all these episodes. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers.